Welcome back to Sashimi. In this episode, I interviewed Jan Ahrens, the founder and CEO of Soligo, which provides an integration platform that automates business processes across multiple cloud applications. Jan shared the story of Soligo, discussed the market they operate in, spoke on the company's org structure and functions, and how he manages the fast-growing company with an exceptional retention profile. He also touched on fundraising, relationship with investors, and the long-term vision for the company. Enjoy. Jan, thanks very much for joining the podcast. It's my pleasure. We're obviously going to be talking about Soligo, but perhaps it makes sense to start with the background of the founder. Sure. I'm a veteran in the industry for about, I think, gosh, 25 years. Started in a more technical capacity as a developer. Did that for about two and a half years, maybe, and soon came to the realization that that was not my calling, mainly because... Looking back uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I can uh, understand why I thought so. I always wanted to solve problems. And uh, the closer I got to the business problem that I was looking to solve, I realized that that was going to be better. So sitting in a cubicle, churning out code seven, eight hours of the day without really understanding how it impacts the ultimate business problem that you're trying to solve was not what I was meant to do in my career. But I'm really glad that I did what I did because it gave me a strong foundation to be able to really start my career. Anyhow, so started as that, then moved on to this company named Cambridge Technology Partners, a global consulting firm, worked there for four or five years. And that was a phenomenal experience where I got to play so many different roles from a business analyst, project manager, so on and so forth, and, and really work with dot-coms, massive banks, uh, do $20 million projects, and then do these little projects. And that's really where I cut my teeth, then joined a, a SaaS company, NetSuite, back in, gosh, 2003. And that's what ultimately led to me starting Soligo in 2011. 2003. It was before the term SaaS even existed, probably, right? Yeah, so there's a, there's a big debate, right? Who was the true first SaaS company? Uh, I think Concur uh, is laying claim to that because they started in 98, 99, Salesforce, NetSuite, and maybe one or two other companies. That was the world of SaaS in 2003. Honestly, I didn't even know what SaaS meant at that time. And six months after joining NetSuite, the light bulbs really started to turn on dimly and then all of a sudden brightly in my head. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the future. This is what enterprise software is going to be. And little did I know, fast forwarding to 2021, that this would be a massive revolution. Take me back to Soligo. So you started in 2011, you said, right? Correct. What is Soligo? Can you kind of explain to me as, as if I'm a five-year-old? So in the simplest terms, we help automate the enterprise. So you might ask, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, automation comes in many different forms. And what we do is our core capabilities, we allow companies to be able to connect various different business applications together. Not just business applications, but business applications and various data sources, databases, files, so on and so forth. So imagine a company today, small or large, irrespective of the industry, 
companies have tons of these SaaS applications, maybe some homegrown applications. And these applications are acquired at a centralized level. And then oftentimes more and more at a departmental and line of business level. And before you know it, you have this massive sprawl of applications and data sitting around. And we come in and we are the plumbing that puts this all together so that there's a connected enterprise and companies can automate certain types of well-known business processes, such as quote to cash or hire to retire or getting 360 degree visibility into their customers or automating simple tasks. We do all of that. Is it fair to say that the clients that you have typically have a lot of different uh, business applications? In general, yes. But I would say any company these days, even a small mom and pop type company has a number of business applications, right? So yes, the ideal customer for us is someone who's reached a certain critical mass of business applications and especially has some applications, what we call foundational applications. Think of a an HR application or an ERP or a CRM or marketing automation. They are the system of record for various different business objects in the enterprise, such as a customer or a sales order or a vendor. And if you have those foundational business applications, that means by definition, other more specialized applications, such as an expense management application or an AP automation application or a collaboration application, needs to be able to connect to the system of record and the application that represents that system of record. So what's then your sweet spot when it comes to the customers? Is it enterprise, middle market and up, or maybe something else? In general, we are designed to serve customers across a really large spectrum. That's how we built our platform. But our focus as of right now is by and large on what we define as the mid-market. So think of mm -hmm. companies as a, just a very rough proxy with revenues up to maybe a billion or a couple of billion. Uh, I mean, certainly we have lots of customers who are aware more than that, but that's where we tend to focus for a number of different reasons. One really good reason being that these are the companies that are a little bit more forward thinking. They've invested in SaaS. They have tons of applications and they need these applications to be connected. Compare and contrast to really large enterprise customers who tend to do things in a slightly different way. They are kind of bogged down by old practices and what have you, and they've got many other solutions. And it's not easy for them to be able to move and embrace the cloud model as freely as a typical mid-market company. But again, ultimately, we are slowly inching our way to serve the entire spectrum. When it comes to pricing of the software? How do you think about it? Before I answer the question, it's important to understand ultimately how this automation occurs. So think of business applications or various data sources as being an endpoint. Let's say if you have Salesforce and Marketo and Slack and Microsoft Office, those are four different applications, those are four different endpoints. And then if you're trying to connect, let's say, two or three of those applications together, 
you're going to ultimately implement certain use cases, right? You're going to move data. Maybe you're trying to synchronize the customer between various applications or run particular business logic. And those are what we call workflows. So the, the unit economics end up being the number of applications or endpoints that you want to connect. And then the second dimension is the number of flows that you have. So we are a platform. We've got many different editions. Of course, each edition also has additional features, but the primary dimension for pricing is around endpoints. How many endpoints are you trying to connect? And then the secondary dimension is more around how many workflows are you trying to implement? So does it mean as I'm adding the new endpoint and uh, the floor, I have to be paying more or it's some sort of tiered pricing? Absolutely. Spot on. We certainly don't want to ding a customer every time they have to use a new endpoint or build a new flow, right? So it's based on tiers where we try to roughly approximate the needs of different companies based on how mature they might be in terms of their needs for integration. And it's only when they really outgrow a particular tier, that's when they need to be able to upgrade to the next tier. Let's talk about your competitors. Who else does this? It is a very diverse field. Uh, and I won't get into particular names, but let me just try to break it down a little bit in terms of the different categories. So the space we are in is called the IPaaS or Integration Platform as a Service space. And in that IPaaS space in of itself, there are two main categories. One is the first generation of IPaaS vendors. These are companies and platforms that were started, let's say, in the mid-2000s when SaaS became more and more prevalent and designed at that time to solve problems that are fairly different from the problems that need to be solved today. And so these companies have been around for 10, 15 years. They were built to serve predominantly an IT user. So the, the person using the product needs to be technical, even though they can be a, a low-code or no-code type solution. You have to have that technical mindset. You have to understand how APIs work. The next category is what we call the next generation iPaaS vendors to so think of companies that were started five, seven, 10 years back, where there is an emphasis on usability of being able to come in and start building something out without necessarily having to be trained on how to use the product. It's intuitive. It's going to lead you and guide you. And the key thing is it should be able to be used by both IT users, as well as what we call more of a tech-savvy business user, someone who understands the problem that they're trying to solve. They're trying to automate a certain business process. They understand what success looks like. And if you know what needs to be done, even though you're not technical, we want to be able to empower those types of users. So I gave you two categories, but it's fragmented. There are numerous other vendors in the data integration space known as ETL or these days ELT. Think about connecting to a data warehouse, ingesting a data warehouse with data from various operational SaaS applications. Well, we do that. 
Then there's another space called B2B integration, where you're connecting with various trading partners in your supply chain using all the technologies called EDI. Well, we do that as well. Then we compete with other purpose-built point-to-point solutions where, let's say, in a particular vertical or for a particular business process or in a particular ecosystem, there are certain solutions, typically from consulting companies, but then some have converted to being more of an ISV. So we compete with them, so on and so forth. It's, It's a very diverse, fragmented space. Is it space with a lot of, let's say, call it white space, where uh, some companies just don't even use this type of solution, or you have to replace the existing solutions? It's both. There are some companies who, by the way, might be of a fairly large scale who don't have any type of automation or integration platform within the company. And so you might think, well, how's that possible, especially if they have 50, 100 SaaS applications in the enterprise? Mm -hmm. Well, the simple answer is that a lot of these SaaS applications, especially the smaller specialized applications, those vendors have some kind of a pre-built integration with those larger SaaS applications. Remember, I talked about the foundational SaaS applications, the the system of record. So I'll I'll just use a quick example. Let's say, let's take Expensify, a really well-known expense management system, very easy to use, awesome product. In order for them to do business, they, by definition, need to connect to two foundational SaaS applications. One is the HR system to access the employee record. And the other is to an ERP because they have to be able to record the expense transactions back in the ledger. Mm -hmm. So for a company like Expensify, and again, I'm just using this as just a more of an abstract example. For a company like that to be able to sell their product, their customers expect them to have a solution pre-built. And so sometimes companies get to a certain stage uh, where they don't even realize that they uh, need an integration platform because there are these various custom vendor-built integrations somehow in play until it reaches a certain stage and then they realize that that alone is not sufficient. Does it mean that as this small application continue developing, they might create so many different integration to so many different other apps that's almost make you hard to compete for clients or there's always going to be need for your solution? Yeah, good question. So our value prop is we're not here just to come in and say, use us because we think our solution is going to be better than the status quo. Mm -hmm. It's very much either based on a mission critical need or an ROI need, or there's a defined problem. So just going back to the example that I cited on the last question, a company might have gotten to a certain stage relying on a number of these vendor-built integrations. Uh, Maybe they've had some other consultants come in and custom code something. And so, fine, it works. Now they continue to buy more applications. And after a while, if you take a step back and look at the enterprise, there's no blueprint in terms of how this company is going to have a connected enterprise, right? What they'll realize is they have a bunch of disparate integrations built by various vendors who don't know about the existence of another integration. There's Mm -hmm. no method to the madness. Everyone has sold them something to sell their product, but no one's 
take concerned about the larger well-being on how this company is going to get a return on their investment on all these SaaS applications and data sources, so on and so forth. So that's one way where even though it might work okay, they understand that there are a number of flaws that they need something more holistic or they soon run into limitations of these vendor-built integrations. So a classic example is the connection that they get, let's say, with the expense management system that they bought is more fixed. They cannot customize it. So now they have a custom rule they need to run and they cannot do it. Uh, or they want to connect with a third application and run a more complex orchestration. And that could be the catalyst for them to go look for a platform to be able to standardize to build the automations. Gotcha. So if I'm your client, seems like I already have many different connecting points. Seems like it's quite sticky solution, right? It's hard for me probably to go to someone else, even if I'm really mad at you. Is it fair to say? Uh, it is a very sticky solution with one caveat, and that is the more endpoints you connect, the stickier it gets. Yep. So let, let me just give you a simple example. If let's say some random customer came to us and wants to build a simple integration, it's a simple automation, might have a couple of workflows to connect system A with system B. And they decided to not use system B anymore. They changed their plans. Then the need for the integration goes away. And so that is not sticky. So the key is how holistic is the usage of the platform within the enterprise. If you get in at an individual kind of departmental level, it's less stickier if you don't grow from there. That's the key exception. There are two logical questions come from that. I'm curious if you can share your churn data. Yeah, so as a, as a private company, we don't typically share that information. I will say this, going back to my last example, if that a set of companies, a cohort of companies are using us in a more holistic fashion where they have multiple endpoints being connected, then typically the churn is going to be, let's say, in the mid single digits or thereabouts. That's right. uh, an accurate reflection on the stickiness. And my second question is about the go-to-market strategy, because as you're speaking about the number of connections, I'm curious, how do you guys approach market? Do you provide it as a trial period when they connect enough endpoints that they don't want to go back to previous life or you do it differently? Good question. So we do two things. We give our customers a 30-day trial, full-featured. As you can imagine, Certain solutions, and we didn't really talk about this, we have also a lot of pre-built solutions as well. And we've built uh, a reputation as being the premier destination when it comes to solving the automation of certain business processes in a pre-built format. So I won't get into those details. So we, we allow for that. But if you, especially if you are trying to build something from scratch, it's a platform, you can arguably connect anything with anything. Then the typical understanding is, hey, I, I need to go try it out. I want to make sure that this is going to work. So we do that. Not only that, we also offer a freemium model where we will give you a couple of workflows for free in perpetuity. So... Uh, Let's go back to that example before where this given company has a simple automation that they want to build out between application A and application B. 
Well, great. You can use our freemium model. We'll stand behind it. And if you like it, then either you're going to tell your colleagues or you might be in the IT department and you might know of other automations that you want to build and, and we're going to scale from there as well. Well, if you use these two models, I'm curious, how is growth of revenue or ARR, whatever you want to use? Can you share that number? Before I answer that question, let me just give you some quick context. So we started in 2011. And then in around 2015, we decided for very good reasons that we wanted to entirely rebuild our platform. An incredibly painful and disruptive process. And we came to market in early 2016 with a brand new platform built from the ground up. And if I fast forward to today, five years later, the single best decision we made as a company because we were able to take our learnings from the first five years and build a platform that we thought is going to solve the needs of the modern enterprise and into the future. So ever since we did that, we've been growing at about 50% year over year ARR. That's kind of where we are today. That sounds like a pretty healthy growth. And can I ask you how large your ARR is? I, I figured you were going to ask me that question. So <laughs> again, without getting into specifics, let's say we are very close to hitting the 50 million in ARR. That's nice. And I, I've heard that you guys are in the midst of raising the funding. That is correct. So obviously, I cannot get into any any details. The one thing I will say is, even though we are based here in the heart of Silicon Valley in San Mateo, California, unlike a lot of other typical Bay Area companies, we've not raised a ton of money. So we've we've done a series A and B rounds, a total of about 30 million. And we've been very capital efficient in being able to put that money to use. In fact, even though we are in the midst of a financing, we don't really need to raise money. We still have enough capital left from our Series B round because we've been pretty efficient. The only reason we're contemplating in raising capital is there's such a massive tailwind behind us, especially after the pandemic or during the pandemic, the need for what we do to be able to connect the enterprise, to be able to optimize business processes, to be able to find different ways to be able to touch your customers and sell to your customers. We become instrumental in all of that. And given that tailwind and the massive opportunity ahead of us, we've decided to explore some options and see whether it makes sense to raise some additional capital. I'm doing the math. You've grown at 50%. You're about 50 million in ARR. Holy cow, this is, a, this is an expensive company already. Good for you, right? Good for you. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and by the way, as I said before, this is while introducing a new platform, which is five years old. We think the platform reached a point of maturation only about one and a half years back. And we see this when we look at the cohorts of customers that come through every year or every six months and every new cohort that we add is more sophisticated and is using more endpoints and so on and so forth. So we actually think, and part of the rationale for considering raising another round is that from here onwards, now that 
we have a much better refined product market fit uh, and we've got more than 3000 customers that we can really scale at a faster pace from here onwards how many employees do you have yeah gosh we've hired a lot of people this year uh, i'm going to say we are maybe around 460 ish uh, our goal was to end the year around 500 and we're running a little short on that target it's a competitive market out there mm-hmm. and we've beefed up our recruiting team and made a ton of progress in the last 3 months how is your company structure what are the departments you have uh pretty typical saas company right so you got sales yeah. marketing product r&d finance ops so on and so forth uh, we have a maybe one area that's a little bit different is we have a, a customer organization and we have the customer success team the support team the implementation team and the education siligo university all within that customer organization and uh, let's talk about your sales organization how is it structured yeah so again fairly typical given that our focus based on the go to market strategy yeah. it's predominantly an inside sales type mm-hmm. model gotcha. so as you can imagine we have various different quarter carrying sales reps either based on region we've got an office in EMEA as well in Europe and then we like to split it between expansion sales selling to the install base versus new logo sales then we've got SDRs, BDRs, solution consultants, mm-hmm. enablement, the whole nine yards. So as uh, almost like product-led growth, I'd say. I would say it's a hybrid of yeah. product-led mm-hmm. growth. It's not going to be like a, a Slack or a, a Zoom because we, we we talked about the freemium model. Uh, we get a lot of prospects who want to try it out using the freemium model, so on and so forth. Certainly we have that. but then there are a lot of other customers that need to be educated on the larger business problem that we solve because otherwise they have a pretty narrow focus and they kind of hone in on a particular acute pain point that they have rather than thinking in a holistic fashion i'm assuming your marketing then focused primarily on uh, branding and uh, content creation and this kind of stuff for sure so we've reorganized our marketing department uh, we have a new cmo who's been with us for about 6 months and roughly there is a, a growth marketing a department there's product marketing which is very important for all the reasons mentioned mm-hmm. and then there's the corporate communications sector as well branding and and what have you comes under that that's fairly nascent for us we've been a little bit under the radar while we built our new platform to a certain level i think in, in a way you can say that we've been one of the best kept secrets in the automation <laughs> space and we're about to change that with a very big splash in the coming 6 to 12 months When it comes to marketing how do you measure the effectiveness of the department So many many different metrics in fact we just finished a QBR this morning to me where the rubber meets the road especially between marketing and sales is pipeline that's the ultimately the end all be all metric that we use pipeline generation but of course there are a number of other metrics starting with the likes of mqls sqls 
understanding the number of meetings that our SDR team books on a weekly basis, understanding the cost of various different channels. These are a number of things that we look into. And the customer success, you mentioned that they have like almost expanded role there. They educate and they do traditional customer success. Who do they report to? So they report into the head of the customer organization. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that there are different roles, right? So if it's implementation, there is a, a typical professional services, a small team. The customer success team, we've changed the mandate. Previously, the CSMs would own the renewals. And we've changed that. We've restructured our install base. We have a new set of tiers. And by and large, now the mandate of a CSM is adoption. It's the realization of value as quickly as possible. And then let the install base sales folks, uh, who we call growth account executives, to focus on expansion and renewal so that all the transactions are handled by this one sales type person. And the CSM is free to focus entirely on not just customer satisfaction, but how fast can we make this customer successful and have them adopt the product so that, again, it's very much a land and expand model. If they started small with a few endpoints, how can they expand and use more endpoints? And what's a KPI to measure their performance? We have just a number of different metrics, starting from a customer health score to ultimately net retention type numbers. That's kind of the all encompassing number, but then at a much lower level, looking at the adoption, understanding the number of workflows and endpoints that the customers are using or adding the incremental changes. These are all things that we would track at that level. You said the people who are in charge of renewal are different. You said you call them growth sales? Growth account execs. And those are not the ones who bring new clients, right? Correct. How do you compensate them though? They are compensated based on a couple of different ways. Uh, one is on the expansion revenue that they bring in. And then the second is based on net retention, right? So they're mm -hmm. responsible for ultimately the renewals. Instead of just basing it on churn, we picked net retention because we think ultimately it's a better metric. It encompasses both that expansion and churn. Got it. So obviously you said you, you raised two rounds of funds already. I'm wondering how involved are those investors in the company? We've been very picky on the investors that we've selected so far. What I love about the investors that we have is that they let us run our business. They are there to support us. They have various different insights. They're engaged. They want to know more. And when they see certain things, certain trends, right, pattern recognition based on other portfolio companies, they'll be the first to tell us, but it's always ultimately based on, we can tell you what we see, but ultimately we trust you to make the right decisions. 
take this data, take this advice, adapt it as needed. But you know your business the best. So you obviously have this massive tailwind and you I'm sure you're very busy and I'm sure you have plans for the next couple of years what to do. But what's your long-term vision of the company? So uh, the long-term vision is a very ambitious and that is, let's say, fast forward to five years from now. We want to be, the term I use is the enterprise operating system for any company. Uh, Well, what does that mean? Any type of automation that you want to build, whether it's integrating various different business applications together, building low-code, no-code type workflows that may or may not involve integrating applications, doing some process mining or typical RPA type work. Automation is an overloaded term. It means different things depending on the context. And we want to be that single pane of glass, that connective tissue, so to speak, for the enterprise where we are the heartbeat of the enterprise. Anything to do with optimizing and automating the enterprise, we want to be the platform to be able to do that. And would you think, would you want to go public one day or maybe stay private forever or being acquired by somebody bigger? Yeah, so let me answer the last question first. We've certainly not built this business with an acquisition in mind. Certainly, if the right party comes calling, we will listen. But in general, we're trying to solve a big problem. This is not an easy problem to solve. And arguably, it's hard work to be able to do this properly. So as a result, we've been measured in how we go about this. Uh, not trying to look for the, the quick wins or take shortcuts because we have a long-term perspective in mind. We think that one day this is going to be a massive business or this is a massive space. There are going to be multiple winners in the space and those winners will have a significant market share, significant business. To answer your question about IPOs, we are not really even thinking about that. I mean, obviously, when we get to certain numbers, we have to start thinking about it. It's just a pit stop for us. And and certainly, I think the way IPOs are looked at today versus 10 years back or five years back, it has also changed a fair bit. Understanding that ultimately, we want to stay independent for as long as possible in order to accomplished what we set out to do. That is the most important thing. We want to make sure that companies can integrate and automate the enterprise at scale where business users and technical users can do it. We've seen enough proof points. We've got close to 3,500 customers. And now we want to be able to do that at scale. That's great. Jan, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. I'm looking forward to reading more about Soligo and watching you guys continue growing and changing this space.